uh, kind of get started on a on somewhat of a new topic, and because of that, we're going to have to do some review. And so, some of this stuff uh, you you may have heard over time. Uh, but I am excited about what I believe is coming. I um, the last little bit I've spent in prayer. I, I just find that I find that Yahweh has been leading me into a place of enjoying the fact that I am unaware of the fullness of the blueprints that are coming to the church at large. Um, and so I, I want to talk tonight and over the next few weeks about um, Koinonia and Reformation. And we're going to talk a lot about Koinonia uh, over the next couple weeks and, and evaluate what that means for us and what Koinonia and Reformation will look like as a whole to the best uh, of my ability. I do believe... Overall, we are um, heading into, and for some, for some kingdom families, I actually believe they've already started in the process of moving into what I believe is going to be kind of the greatest reformation of what the church has been. Um, and, and, and the greatest reformation of a return to a koinonia lifestyle within the body as a whole. I think there is... Um, I don't really, I've been trying to think all week of the best terms to put it in, but I believe there is something coming that is going to begin to teach us and bring us back to original intent and lead us back into who we've been designed to be, just not as a local body, but as a body as a whole. Um, I wrote this last night. I said, it'd be foolish to say that the current state and blueprint that the church in the West has operated in has produced nothing or had no impact or breakthrough. But the current blueprint of the church has failed miserably, in my opinion, in creating sons and daughters rich in power and driven with purpose. The call of the church and its leadership has always been to produce sons and daughters who look just like the son. Instead, we have created encouraged orphans who see a possible reunion with their God, right? Not their father. This is not discouraging, in my opinion, and this is, I'm not trying to use this as discouragement, rather as encouraging, because what I do believe is that Yahweh is beginning the process of raising up kingdom families to return, like I've said, to original intent, which I believe is the original intent of the church is presence in Koinonia. This, this word, and, and we're going to look at this word here in a minute, because some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what that word is, so you can keep saying it, but it won't make any sense until you tell me what it's all about. And so, if we look at the word koinonia in Scripture, um, koinonia is what uh, the Greek word that they would use for fellowship within the body. If you were to look at it in Thayer's Greek lexicon, it would say that koinonia represents fellowship, association, community. It actually also can represent intimacy between two partners, Right? So we're not looking for that, but we are looking for a greater level of, of, of fellowship within the house. If you were to look at scriptures like Acts 42, it would say, uh, well, let's just go there. Go ahead and go to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 2 for me because we're going to hang in there for a few minutes tonight. Um, go ahead and go to Acts 2, and we're going to be uh, starting in verse 42. So it's going to be closer to the end there. Um, so koinonia is this word 
that in Greek would represent the fellowship that happens between the believers, between believers in the house. Thank you for having that up there. Um, Let me read this real fast before we do. I wrote this after. I said, I think the mistake we can make when looking currently outside of the new wineskin in which Yahweh is creating, which we've talked a lot about, this new wineskin that's being produced within um, our, our house and just a lot of these kingdom families at large. But I put, the mistake we can make when looking outside the new wineskin in which Yahweh is creating is to become overly critical in what the church has been operating in so far. Right? Oftentimes we can look outside of our house. Oftentimes we can look at the church at large and we oftentimes immediately become critical at everything that's being done and everything that has been done. And oftentimes what we don't understand is most leadership currently in the body is doing what they know and the blueprint that they have seen so far. Right? There, there is not a lot of malice right now within the church at large. Rather, leadership among the body as a whole is really leaning in to what they know and how they've known to operate so far. Because the blueprint, at least since the mid-1900s has been you start a church and then you start a small group and then you start a youth group and then you start a kids thing and then you start this thing and you start that thing and you have this thing and an event and an event and an event and a conference and a conference and a conference and that's how it goes. And if if that's worked for every other church, it'll work for every other church. And so they just keep repeating it over and over and over again, right? But there's, there's no malice in that. And so oftentimes what can be scary is when we move ourselves into the, into the place of being overly critical at what has been and not focusing on what has come. An even greater caution we must look out for is our, is our hope that we begin to constantly live in what was the church model. Oftentimes, as much as we can get caught at being critical at what was, we can be caught off guard when it isn't exactly like that. We get mad at something until it's the one thing apart a part of the old model that we really loved. And then we don't like it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, like what if we did one song, then I preached for 10 minutes, we did another song, I preached for 10 minutes, that would just throw everything off, right? <laughs> That's not the way it's ever been. It's not the way it has to go. We have a model. We have a blueprint. This is how it goes. Boom, 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 boom. And so we can become critical, and even to a greater scale, we can begin to hold on to our traditions here in the West of how things have been designed to a place that we refuse to move into anything new. Right? But I want us to start by let's taking a look at what the church was in Acts because I believe the new wineskin that is coming is a call to return to original intent of the church. Of, of what we would commonly call the Acts church, right? What we would commonly call kind of the original church that formed. I believe there is a call back to this, but in a sense, it's a call backwards, but it's also a call forward because it hasn't been produced in the West yet. So let's look at um, Acts 2, uh, verse 42. It says, Every believer was faithfully devoted to following following the teachings of the apostles. Their hearts were mutually linked to one another, sharing communion, coming together regularly for prayer. A deep sense of holy awe swept over everyone, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers were in fellowship as one body, and they shared with one another what every whatever they had. Out of, genero- out of generosity, they even sold their assets to distribute the proceeds to those who were in need among them. 
Daily they met together in the temple courts and in one another's homes to celebrate communion. They shared meals together with joyful hearts and tender humility. They were continually filled with praise to God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were coming to life. Now, if we were, if we were to do an honest assessment of where we feel like the church is at now, how much does it look like this? Okay, great. Everyone's in agreement. Right there, we, What we see here is not just a devotion shockingly to Jesus, but what we actually see almost in a greater scale is a devotion to each other. We see a shocking devotion to each other. And um, Brian Simmons translates this word into a phrase. Uh, he says, um, their hearts were mutually linked to one another. But if you were to look up, Acts, and and like the English Standard Version, Acts 2.42 would say, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. That word fellowship is the word koinonia. So anytime the church would gather, in their minds, in their thought process, what they were sharing in was koinonia. It was the intimacy of true fellowship. One of the literal definitions is, is intimate intercourse between two people. In their mind, there wasn't a lot of orgies. I'm not saying that. But in their mind, what they were sharing in overall is this idea that they were actually one body. They were united as one being. They had one purpose. They had one goal. They had one heart. They had one mind. And I believe that it is out of this strength out of this ability and how they operated, that they were able to be who they were, right? If we were to look at some other, some other examples of, of Koinonia in Scripture, Romans uh, 15, 26 says, For Macedonia and um, Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That word contributions is Koinonia. It also covers giving. Uh, in um, 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that term fellowship, koinonia. 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing that we bless, it is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The, blood, the bread that we break is not a participation in the blood of Christ. That word participation of sharing in the blood of Christ is the word koinonia. Here's one more, 2 Corinthians 8, 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Everything that the early church operated in came out of this phrase of koinonia. And I believe what we're, amen, hallelujah. Even the chairs are excited for tonight. And the chair starts shouting, it's going to be a good one. Um, but I believe we are in this reformation of returning to this place of intimacy within the church. We're in this reformation of returning to this place of understanding that what we are and what we're called to be is deeper than just a gathering. Right? It, it's deeper than what we thought it is. I wrote that the church is being called and pushed back into true relationship, not just with the Father, as we've discussed, but with each other. And in order for this to happen, followers of the way must find themselves back to the place of understanding their original intent and created purpose, right? 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks. And so um, I, I just want to do some review of where we've been. And some of you have probably heard some of this, but we have to have an understanding of our intended purpose to understand how we love people around us. You can't, you can't love out of who you are until you actually know who you are. And you can't share and understand the Father's love until you know who you are. So let's do that. Um, I think, um, let's start here. We've been talking really over the past two years, if I could, uh, you know, we've coined the phrase kind of righteous sonship, but talking about this understanding of your place as co-seated, right? That your, your strength and who you are is found out of your ability to understand your co-seatedness with Christ. We use terms all the time now in the church and in scripture. And so the loftiness and weightiness of them begin to leave us because we've heard them for some of us years and years and years and years. I've, I've literally been in church my entire life. I've grown up a church kid. So I feel like I've heard scripture and words. And the song Katie sang tonight, I heard when I was about four years old. So I thought we were going back old school for a minute to a revival. Uh, but these words lose their, their weight with us. But this concept, this idea of at the end of the Gospels, what we do is we see Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father. And by the time we get into Paul's theology and his very high Christology that he lives in, we actually see him representing that we are actually co-seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. This is a, a major shift if you're the early church, this is a massive change. You've been taught up to this point that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Now you've been co-included into that. And so that, that, that becomes very lofty to us. And so unfortunately, what we have currently done predominantly in the church model at large in the West right now is we've moved into this kind of perversion of teaching where we live on this platform of trying to keep people encouraged, right? I, I've said it before. I don't know how many times people need to hear messages on being encouraged before they're encouraged. Can't you just be encouraged already? Right, And so we live in this place of constant encouragement to the place that actually no equipping end, ends up actually happening for anyone. Right, We're always trying to recover from what the world has kept us in. And we've, what we've done is we've taken scriptures and we've, we've twisted them around. And we've moved them around to, one, keep us in process. And two, keep us in this theology that I call the not yet theology. Right, most of, most of the gospel we have heard has been what's to come and not what is here. Right, when you die, this is going to happen. When you get to heaven, this is going to happen. Don't worry, one day, one fine day when this life is over, I'll fly away. Right, it's always, our lives have always been built upon predominantly this theology of not yet. Just wait, I know everything sucks, just wait, not yet. Not yet, not yet, not yet. And so what happens is because we've accepted this theology of not yet, that everything's supposed to be awful internally for us, what we've had to do is, and what leadership has done, is transitioned ourselves into this place of the words we give out and the messages we preach need to be words of encouragement. Because everything's bad and nothing's going to happen yet. And so until Jesus comes, what we actually need is encouragement. And no, what people actually need is to realize who they've been called to be and who they've been designed to be. 
And when we move into that, I promise you, none of us will need encouraging messages anymore. Right, But what I think Christ is calling us into now and what Christ is calling this generation and this era of believers in is back into this place of original intent, back into this place of who we've always been designed to be. Go to Ephesians 4. Because I, I want us to continue to understand, and this is where we're going to kind of start um, a lot of our review. We're going to talk about righteousness uh, because, I mean, what's, what's me being up here not talking about righteousness? It just feels like, what's the point of me preaching if I'm not going to bring up righteousness? It feels like, a, like I would have scammed everyone off tonight. And so we're going to talk about righteousness, and we're going to talk about holiness. But before we do, I want us to continue on this concept of this theology of not yet. And I want us to look at what we, as a leadership team, have been trying our best to get people to understand is that Throughout all the Gospels, Christ never preached a not yet theology. Throughout all the Gospels, Christ's message to you and his hope for you actually had nothing to do with you going to heaven. That's not what's in there. We're going to get there, so don't shoot me yet. We're going to get there. But that has not actually been what he has designed us for. It's not been what we've been called to, and Paul would say the same thing. So let's look at Ephesians 4. And we're going to look at, starting in, uh, let's go at 10. The same one, yeah, let's start at 10. The same one who descended is also the one who ascended above the heights of heaven in order to begin the restoration and fulfillment of all things. And he has appointed some with the grace to be apostles, some with the grace to be prophets, and some with the grace to be evangelists, and some with grace to be pastors, and some with grace to be teachers. And their calling is to nurture and prepare all the holy believers to be their own, to do their own works of ministry. And as they do this, they will enlarge and build up the body of Christ. This, these grace ministries will function until we all attain oneness in the faith, until we all experience the fullness of what it means to know the Son of God, and we finally become one into a perfect man with the full dimensions of spiritual maturity and full development into the abundance of Christ. Now, if, if the fivefold ministry is sent here to bring people into the fullness of who they are, then why are we waiting to die to move into the fullness of who we are? Right? But what we've done is often we've taken scriptures like Matthew 18, 3, right? We've taken scriptures that say things like, well, here's the thing, is um, you actually are supposed to raise up, you're actually supposed to come to Christ like a child, Right? Matthew 18, 3 says that and said, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, right? And so we've taken scriptures like that, entered into the kingdom of heaven in our child likeness and chosen to operate out of process and immaturity throughout our walk in the kingdom. But the call of coming to Christ's kingdom with child likeness is actually Jesus describing the call to come to the kingdom with mystery and to leave back all that you've known. Jesus' call to Israelites when he's talking about to come to him like a child is to say, look, your whole lives have been the law. Your whole lives have been learning the Torah. Your whole lives have been this religion. And until you can come to me again like you were as a child in complete mystery of what is to happen and who you are to be, 
you won't be able to enter into what I'm trying to give you. But the call was not to stay in that process. The call was to come like him in childlikeness to move into the full maturity of who you were designed to be. Right, The writer of Hebrews would describe this when it comes to not understanding your righteousness. In Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews would say that, he says that, unfortunately, most of you are still operating out of immaturity. Brian Simmons' translation would say that, the writer of Hebrews would say, most of you should be professors or scholars right now teaching others in God's prophetic oracles. But you're like infants still needing milk because you've, been un, you've not been pierced yet with the revelation of righteousness. Your inability to perceive your own status as co-seated in Christ has actually led to the ability to be immature. And immaturity was never supposed to be the place that you finished. It was supposed to be the invitation of intimacy that you walked into so that you could find the fullness of who you've been designed to be. I know I'm talking fast, but I'm trying to beat the clock. So keep up and then watch the podcast at half speed if you'd like. But we have mostly lived in this concept that Jesus' goal for you that Jesus' message that the gospel preached throughout all, all four gospels is accept Christ, try to make it through, and pray to God in the end you make it into heaven. That's what we were taught, right? That's what we were taught. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be hard. Every day is going to be terrible. But the hope is eventually that you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is not the gospel taught by Jesus, Right? Jesus taught this in Matthew 4. This is Matthew 4, 12 through 17. This is the message Jesus brought often, and you can find it. I could have sat here and read it to you 40 different times in all four Gospels, but I just chose one. It says, when Jesus heard that John the baptizer had been thrown into prison, he went back into Galilee. Jesus moved from Nazareth to make his home in Capernaum, which is by Lake Galilee in the land of Zebulun. And Nephtali. He did this to make the prophecy of Isaiah come true. Listen, you who live in the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, along the road to the sea and on the other side of the Jordan and Galilee, the land of the, of, of the Gentiles, you who spend your days shrouded in darkness can now say, we have seen a brilliant light. And those who live in the dark shadow land of death can now say, the dawning light arises on us. From that time on, Jesus began proclaiming, his message with these words. Keep turning away from your sins and come back to God. For heaven's kingdom realm is now accessible. This is the message that Jesus preached. That kingdom's heaven realm is now accessible. Jesus came and brought a right now kingdom. We've heard that term before, but it's the reality. Jesus brought a right now kingdom, not a wait until. That has been the purpose, right? Jesus spends his three years in ministry not teaching us to hold on and stay strong till we get to go to the other planet outside of our cosmos called heaven. Rather, he teaches that he is bringing and by the time Calvary comes, has brought the kingdom here and his invitation after that and to the apostles is for you to join in into that kingdom. This invitation is not just an invitation ship to partnership, but it's actually an invitation for you to return to original intent. If we get back to Genesis chapter 1, the goal, or Genesis chapter 2, if we get back to that, the goal that Yahweh had for Adam was for them to work together in unity 
to build out the planet and to build out the kingdom throughout this planet. That got derailed, right? Oftentimes in scriptures, Jesus is called the second Adam. And what Jesus has done is proclaimed, not only is he the second Adam, but he's returned all of mankind and all of the cosmos is being returned to its original intent, which is to bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth. Right? We've talked about we have to get out of the concept and the understanding that heaven is a place and heaven is actually a realm. Heaven is a realm, earth is a place, and they're in the current process of beginning to become one. N.T. Wright would say it like this, that when Jesus took his last breath on Calvary, heaven and earth began their collision course for each other. And slowly but surely they are coming together as one united place. This does not happen, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord does not come by, let me say this right, does not come by the next president being the Antichrist. The kingdoms of this world don't become the kingdoms of our Lord by everything going terrible. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord when people realize who they are and become the image bearers they were designed to be and bring that kingdom here. Right? I've talked about this before. Jesus comes in the worst time of persecution of the church and the worst time of division within their own temple. At the time, Israel was the most divided they have ever been between two head non-Messianic rabbis deciding on which way they will interpret Torah to lead the future. On top of that, the entire nation of Israel is being persecuted and taxed to death by Rome. They can't afford to eat. They can't afford to live. Jesus comes on the scene and talks about neither of them. He talks about the kingdom that is now at hand. He talks about the kingdom that is here. Jesus, unfortunately, never allows the outside world to bring into him who he is. He actually brings who he is to the cosmos around him. He brings who he is into the room around him. Jesus shares this message of the kingdom, and he actually begins to take it further, as we've discussed in Luke. Luke 17, 21 Jesus says these words, that the kingdom is not discovered in one place or another. For God's kingdom realm is already expanding within some of you. The idea for the disciples, these young men are, is okay, Jesus has come to bring this kingdom. When does he overthrow Rome and when does we get started? When do we set governors in place? When do we set leaders in place? How does this move? And Jesus says, it's not how my kingdom comes. He says, my kingdom is not discovered in one place or another. For God's kingdom realm is already expanding within inside some of you. The kingdom realm does not actually come on earth because of governmental rule. It actually comes on earth because of correct representation of you and me to everyone around us. Right? And if we are going to ever move into the revelation and radical true understanding of koinonia fellowship, the ability to be united as one body, we have to be able to understand who we are. We are representatives. We are people designed to bring everything here. I did an extensive um, research this week and I wrote down every scripture 
that Jesus talks about your goal being to get into heaven. Okay? And I'm going to give you all of them. You ready? That was all of them. That was all of them. Right? And so I, I took it further because um, sometimes it's just fun to do it this way. I actually began to Google them. I Googled, you know, scriptures, scriptures that Jesus, or things that Jesus said to talk about going to heaven. This is what it produced for me. First, it produced a scripture we've talked about a bunch in um, John 14, right? It says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I, have not, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am, right? We've heard that scripture before. Some of the old King James versions would say, I, I go to, you know, I go to prepare a mansion for you, right? That was the old song, right? And so one of the things we've dissected from the scripture is the reality of this is not what Jesus is saying. Rather, what Jesus is describing almost in a parable-like sense to the people around him is, is that when rabbis would travel from temple to temple throughout Israel, um, every temple carried these almost looking like hotel rooms on the sides of the temple. Has any, anyone seen the first season of The Chosen? Yeah. Okay. In the first season of The Chosen, um, you, you see uh, the head priest Zechariah, and he gets to Capernaum where he's not from, and he's living in this beautiful place. It's got a living room, it's got a kitchen, it's got a massive bedroom in it, right? These are like these hotel, these are basically the motel eights of the Pharisees in um, Second Temple Judaism. And so what it would be described as and what they would understand is that a priest would come to this place, rest for a while, and then move on in his journey. And so there is a bit of, of unease when we get to this scripture on what is to happen when people die. And so Jesus gives us this parable of understanding and gives us this piece that, look, when you pass away, just know that I have a resting place for you that you will rest until we move on to what is to come. Right? That's what he's saying. When you die, don't worry, I've got you. Paul would say the same thing. Paul would say to be absent of the body is to be one with Christ. Right? That doesn't give us a lot of insight. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of insight, but what it does let us know is that from the time that we pass away until new earth begins, Jesus wants to clarify very clearly that he has you. He has you. You are in him. You are with him. Take that however you want. People have broke that out 30,000 different ways. But the reality is that has not been the call or the mission. Right? They go on to use scriptures like, Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom by the power that enables him to bring every, everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that we will look like his glorious body. We're being transformed to bring everything under his control. I can't bring everything under his control if I'm not here. Right? There is a part of restoration of the body, and the one thing we have discussed a lot as a family is the concept that the only thing not promised to you on, on this side of what is to come is a new body. Everything else in Scripture is a promise that is accessible to you right now. Every bit of power. I mean, you can take it as simple as one statement. Jesus said, greater things will you do than I did. 
If that's the case, then everything other than a new body is accessible to you on this side of the cosmos. And what happens is we've, we've spent so much time in discouragement and we've spent so much time in this theology of not yet that we still, not us, because we're all awesome. I'm talking about other, other places. But um, we live in this and get caught in this place of even though we are starting to believe and understand this, there's still a piece of us that is living in the not yet. Right? Most of our not yet theologies are not actually built out of scripture. They're actually built out of disappointment. Right? What was sensationalism built out of? People who didn't see healing. Right? So many different things just like that. A lot of people don't believe in the gifts, not because they're not real, but because they haven't been able to access them themselves. Because they've been taught that they're so worthless, they don't actually believe they deserve to have them. And so because they don't actually believe they deserve to have them, they never operate in them. So they accept and take on a theology of disappointment and move into a place where they don't actually exist. So instead of becoming their problem, it actually becomes a problem of the cosmos where it's not about them anymore. And we could move on to, to the idea that not only is heaven not the mission of God, but also Jesus teaches us that eternal life by scripture standard actually has nothing to do with living forever. And we've talked about this before, right? That scripture has nothing, or eternal life in scripture has nothing to do with living forever. I grew up my whole life believing this concept that if you accept Jesus Christ, he'll give you eternal life. And eternal life means that you get to live forever. That's been the exciting thing. We get to live forever. And living forever is a part of eternal life, but that's not what it is. Go to John 17. In John 17, Jesus is doing the Last Supper with the apostles, and he begins to say this prayer to his Father. Jesus says, Father, the time has come. Unveil the glorious splendor of your Son so that I will magnify your glory. You have already given me authority over all people, so that I may give the gift of eternal life to all those that you have given to me. Eternal life means to know and experience you as the only true God and to know and experience Jesus Christ as the son in whom you have sent. Jesus' promise of eternal life, if you have faith in him, has little to do with your ability to live forever and has very much with the ability to discover the fullness of who Yahweh is, to discover the fullness of who the Son is. Now, because the wages of sin are death, and in the kingdom realm there is no death, living forever is attached to eternal life. But don't mistake that eternal life really has anything to do with not dying and has everything to do with seeing the full expression of who the Lord is. And this is why Jesus has to come once again and represent the Father correctly so that we could be given the gift of eternal life. Jesus keeps coming and telling us that I come to represent my Father. Jesus says no one has seen the Father except the, except the Son, right? No one has seen the Father except the Son. And the Son only does what the Father does and only says what the Father says. But Jesus has to come and reveal who the Son truly is to give us the gift of eternal life because we, until we see Jesus, we do not have a full expression of who the Father is. Everybody good? And so 
understanding that Jesus's challenge and charge and the gospel preached um, throughout the four gospels themselves has little to do with getting somewhere and has very much to do with living out of who you've been designed to be right now. And until you can walk into the fullness of who you've been designed to be right now, the vulnerability and the availability to live in true quantity and fellowship will always fall at the wayside. It's the reality of it. You have to understand your place is co-seated. You have to understand your imputed righteousness and your imputed holiness, right? Until you have a greater revelation of imputed righteousness and imputed holiness as the patristic fathers would teach us. We'll always live in a awareness of what we're not. But your position is key to your created purpose because without correct anthropology, you can't actually understand your divine intent within the earth. Right? Your position, once again, is key to your created purpose. Until you can correctly understand your anthropology as a person, you will be unable to understand or even be able to walk out of your divine intent wherever you are and what you're doing. So it starts with imputed righteousness again, and it starts with imputed holiness. It starts with the idea, which I feel like I've said this so much now, it's become an old phrase. It starts with the idea that you have become as righteous as God. That's the starting place, right? That's the starting place. Let's look at it again, because every once in a while, someone looks at me like I'm still lying about that. And I promise you, I'm not. Go to Romans chapter five. Uh, we'll start at verse one. Do you have that, Brody? You're awesome. Awesome in this place. Any single, if anyone's interested, Brody's single back there. If you have a young daughter or something that you're interested in hooking them up with, he's back there. Um, this is what uh, Romans 5 says. Our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us, and he now declares us flawless in his eyes. Let's stop here. The first thing I want you to understand is that there's no works involved in that statement. Not a lick of works. Not a lick of action outside of faith, Right? This is imputed righteousness. Our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us and he now declares us flawless in his eyes. This means we can now enjoy true and lasting peace with God all because of what our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, has done for us. Our faith, once again, no works. Our faith guarantees us permanent, think of that word for a minute, permanent access into the marvelous kindness that has given us a perfect relationship with God. What incredible joy bursts forth within us as we keep on celebrating our hope and experiencing God's glory. Right? So we come into this awareness that we have become as righteous as God, not because of something we've done, but because of what Jesus has done has actually transferred his righteousness to us. That, that phrase and that idea gets very scary because when we hear the term as righteous as God, what we begin to think is there's a level of equality there. And righteousness, as I've discussed before, has nothing to do with equality and has everything to do with identity. Righteousness in Greek is dikaino-usene. And even if you look at it in things like Strong's, as much as I encourage you don't to use Strong's, but... If you were to look at it, even as something as, as strong as it would tell you that dikaino usine is to be made into the, into the state that one ought to be in. 
When God transfers his righteousness to you, the concept is not that you become like God. It is that as much as God is God, you are now you. As much as God has always been who he has originally been designed to be, out of living out of his full intent, your faith in Jesus has transferred that righteousness to you, and now you live into the fullness of who you've been designed to be. This is imputed righteousness. And then, not me, Scripture. Don't forget that when I say stuff. And then, Scripture takes it even further. Not me, Scripture. But Scripture begins to allude to something even greater, that not only have you become as righteous as God, but you've actually become as holy as the Son. Got a couple amens there. That made me very happy. Right? There's not just imputed righteousness involved in this, but there's actually imputed holiness. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 10 and go for, start there. Hebrews 2.10 starts here. For now, this is the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus. For now he towers above all creation. For all things exist through him and for him. And that God made him pioneer of our salvation, perfect through his sufferings. For this is how he brings many sons and daughters to share in his glory, Jesus' glory. Jesus, the Holy One, makes us holy. And as sons and daughters, we now belong to his same Father. So he is not ashamed or embarrassed to introduce us as his brothers and his sisters. If you move on to Hebrews chapter 3, the first verse says this. Sorry, I'm messing up my pages here. And so, dear brothers and sisters, you are now made holy, and each of you is invited to the feast of your heavenly calling. You've now been made holy, and you've now actually been invited into the feast of your heavenly calling. This has to make sense because... Scripture tells us that because of our faith in Jesus, we can now approach the throne room boldly. And to approach the throne of God without being as righteous as him or living in his holiness would make no sense. If Moses could look at a shadow and I can look at his face, how do I do that without being seen through the sun? Right? That's what we've moved into. And so as we've discussed, until we can come to this conclusion and this foundation of who we've always been designed to be within the Father, this idea of reforming ourselves into the true nature of what the church has been designed to be will always be filled with fear and anxiety because as long as I question who I am, I'll never carry the actual vulnerability to be who I've been designed to be with you. Right? Everyone's insecurities doesn't come out of how talented other people are. It comes out of who, how untalented they think they are. Most people have affairs in their marriages not because they're really unhappy. It's because they're so insecure they need someone outside of their current partner to make them feel validated the nature of it. That's why when you hear most people talk about infidelity within their marriage, they go, I don't know where it came from. 
We were fine. We were happy. Everything was great. What happens is there's been a call of, I need someone else outside of this person because I feel so insecure. I'm unable to be validated right now by this person. And that ability to remain insecure in who you are will keep you from the openness required. The, oh, can you imagine the openness of the, of the Acts church for everyone to put all their money in one big pile? I mean, that would be amazing for me and awful for Chad. I mean, if me, Chad, John Whitlock, a couple others all put all of our money in one big pot, I'd be living it up. They'd be in a terrible shape, but I'd be doing quite well for myself. Quite well for myself. Imagine that kind of vulnerability to, to allow yourself to believe that everything you've gained by your hand isn't yours. Imagine that. I would give everything I can to say that I'm there and I'm not. But what I do believe is there is a, a place in righteousness and holiness that we are moving into that we will begin to discover a, discover a vulnerability to be exactly the type of koinonia fellowship that is required right now in the current age that we're in. The blueprint isn't exactly the same, but it's a lot different than what we've had so far. Why does this matter so much if you... Go back to um, Acts chapter 2. It opens up with, uh, well, I've passed it now. If you look at it here, the, the key to the whole operation has been this. Man, Acts chapter 2 is long. It says, every believer was faithfully devoted to following the teachings of the apostles. Everything I've been talking to you about tonight, imputed holiness, imputed righteousness, all of it is the teachings of the apostles. It is the teachings of the patristic fathers. It is the teachings of the desert fathers. This theology sounds new and scary, but it's actually older than what most of us have been taught our entire lives. Much, 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 much older. This devotion to understanding who you've been designed to be, because I, I, one of the things we've talked about before, and you have to understand, Scripture is written very specifically. And all of the Old Testament and New Testament authors, don't mistake yourself in believing they're unintelligent people or they're not great writers. They're some of the greatest writers on the planet. So understand when Scripture is laid out the way it is, it is intentional. And so when they start with the idea that every believer was faithfully devoted to following the teachings of the apostles then go into the statement that their hearts were mutually linked to one another, sharing communion and coming together regularly for prayer, and a deep sense of holy awe swept over everyone. Understand that was built on the foundations of understanding the teachings of the apostles. Your ability, your concept to understand who you've been, desi who you've been designed to be is the only stepping stone to move into what we're designed to be as kingdom families, not just ours, but kingdom families all across the nation and, and the world. If you go on in Scripture, if you go on in Acts 2, it says that, um, let's see. Go, oh, here, here it is. A holy awe swept over everyone, and the, the apostles performed many, mirac many miraculous signs and wonders. There has to be an understanding that 
attached to the understanding of your righteousness and your holiness given to you by Jesus must come must be attached to the ability to understand that you've been called into power also. And for the Acts church, the way they operated out of power to do signs and miraculous miracles actually came out of their ability to share purely in Koinonia fellowship. Their strength was not found in simply themselves. Their strength was found in their unitedness as a body. That's what changed the face of the entire Roman Empire. That's what took a a group of 11 teenagers, now called apostles, and an an ex-Pharisee, to changing and reforming country after country in the greatest empire ever created. Where within just a couple hundred years from that, that religion based out of these group of people believing that they were as loved as Jesus is, building their faith off of one another and sharing in fellowship, that faith actually became the, the uh, declared faith of the entire empire of Rome. The, the mighty signs, the people who they were designed to be, the way they changed regions, the way they changed cities, the way they changed nations, the way they operated did not come simply out of great theology. It actually came out of their fellowship together, their unity. It changed everything for everyone. Imagine being a young woman in the Roman Empire and everyone sees you as property. And there's a group of people so um, dedicated to fellowship that when you come in, they understand that you're a part of their own body. And so they treat you correctly. Imagine the sick coming into a house, not only being healed, but being fed, taken care of, and now housed. Imagine people caring so much that they operated and moved out of this everywhere they went. We've used this word a lot, but I believe that one of the things Beloved is called to, and, and, and a lot of kingdom families around the nation are called to right now, and even in Canada, is this idea of we are being called to a pilgrimage and colonization. Right? Not bad colonization. Don't get that word out of your head of like where we come in and kill everyone that currently lives here so we can have their land. Not that kind of colonization. Get that out of your head. <laughs> but the good kind. We're being called to a pilgrimage in our area. We're being called to colonize land around us for the kingdom. This is the message of the gospel. Paul would say it like this in Philippians 3. He would say, but we are a colony of heaven on earth. And we cling tightly to our life giver, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our humble bodies and transfigure us into the identical likeness of his glorified body. And using his matchless power, he continually subdues everything to himself. I love the way this is, um, I love the way that Francois Dutrois writes this in the Mere Translation Bible. This is how he translates the scripture. It says, our citizenship is referenced in our joint position with Christ in heavenly places. Heaven is not our goal. It is our starting point. Our understanding is sourced in a Savior. We fully embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation that Jesus is author of refashions these bodies of clay and elevates us to the fully participate to fully participate in the same pattern of his heavenly glory. 
The severe contradiction that we might often face in the frailty of this flesh is by far surpassed by the glorious splendor displayed in his human body raised from the dead. According to the workings of God's dynamic power, he imprints the mirror pattern of his likeness in us. Thus he subdues all things to himself. Francois Dutrois writes this in translating this. When he writes that our citizenship is referenced in our joint position with Christ in heavenly places, heaven is not our goal. It is our starting point. That term there is euparoch, which means to make a beginning or a starting point. Right? So when he says we cling to, that term is actually we start from. So you have to understand that your place in your salvation, your starting place is in heavenly places. And your call is to colonize from where you are, not wait to get where you're hoping to be. When we do this, we get out of this constant concept that everything has to happen in the church. That's not Koinonia Fellowship. Koinonia Fellowship is the design and the ability for you to understand that everything you do is unto Christ. And you've been called to colonize the kingdom in every area of your life. Every time that you're a good father to your children and show that to people around you, you're building a colony of heaven everywhere you are. Every time you start a business and operate it the kingdom way, you colonize a piece of the kingdom where you are. Every place you and your wife go as a godly marriage and represent that to everyone around you, you participate in your calling of colonizing the kingdom of heaven everywhere you are. Every time you give above and abundantly wherever you go, whether that's tipping a waiter, whether that's just being kind in a room, whatever that looks like, you colonize a piece of the kingdom realm wherever you are. And the church has done such a job of pushing ourselves inside and pushing ourselves into our own little spaces. We've created worship experiences. We've created dream teams. We've created everything and anything under the sun to keep everyone in the room as much as we can because our fear is, is that they'll leave. But the concept and the whole idea is that you come here to get equipped to go, to get out of here. The whole, the whole process of why the gathering was built so that you could be who you were designed to be in every area of your life. It is the calling, it is the purpose of the ecclesia. It is the calling and meaning of the church as a whole. Our strength and our power is not found in our ability to gather here. Our strength and our power is to be seen in every influence of life, colonizing the kingdom all around us in every area that we are in. All of us have been given and have been positioned in places of influence in different areas of life, whether that be with your own children, whether that be as business leaders, whether that be as entrepreneurs, whatever that looks like, you've been positioned into a place to colonize it, to look like how the kingdom realm would operate it. Go to some of the business of people in our family. They're different. They operate different. Go look at... at at the standards it takes to work for John Whitlock. They're different. Go into Bert's tap room. There's been, there's been more deliverance done in Bert's tap room than probably any church in, in the city. And that either comes out of how holy they are or how drunk they are. Either way, demons are coming out. Relax, Bert don't drink, just Laura does a lot. It's fine. 
We're working on that. It's fine. No big deal. We'll get there eventually. She'll be fine. She'll figure it out. But what happens is what you're beginning to see is this colonization of the kingdom realm, not in the room, but in the region. You're seeing it built everywhere they go, everything they do. I've been praying this prayer for myself. If, if Paul's sweat rag can go around city to city and heal people, then every handle I touch to open a door should be an access for someone to touch and get their healing. Right? Trey's a carpenter. Every fence, everything he builds should be a place that anytime someone touches, they receive something. Because everything he touches actually no longer lives in this realm. It actually lives in a different one. It's a colonization of something different. That was the call of the apostle. That's what made Rome, as we've talked about, the nation and the power and the empire that they were. Is that when Rome would conquer a, another nation, they would send in apostles to bring in the culture of Rome. And it only took one generation for those people to not feel like conquered people by Rome, but to feel like Romans. Rome made every person that they brought into slavery eventually feel like Romans. They carried their holidays, their traditions, their ways, their nature, everything about them. And you are called to a place of influence to those around you to do the same. Not through shouting and yelling, simply by who you are. When Jesus would walk into the temple, one of the, the things I pray over myself all the time, I, I just the scripture amazes me is, Jesus walks into the temple, not as a Pharisee, and he begins to teach. And the amazement is not in all the things he said is not what Scripture says. But it says that the people were amazed at the authority in which he spoke. There was something about when Jesus spoke that people listened. It's like when you get around a dynamic salesman. Some people could sell you anything. They really could. Right? Go hang out. Chad's a salesman. Go hang out with Chad long enough. He'll talk you into anything. He could sell you anything in the world. I've done all kinds of new stuff with my whole life just because we're in community together. He sold me on all new ways of living. Just by how he talks. Rhythmic talking. It's beautiful. Right? And there's something about the authority in which Jesus spoke that it actually shifted how people listened and positioned themselves in a room. You've all been designed to do the same. That's what scripture says. And what Jesus did to produce this in other people is he modeled a lifestyle of proximity. He modeled a lifestyle of bringing people into where he was. And as they went out, they became more like him. And that is the point of Koinonia Fellowship is that Jesus brought the 12 in and would send them out. And then when he brought them back, he sent out 72. And what happens is the more people that begin to live in proximity to him and proximity to each other actually begin to share in his nature and look like him. And their job was not to keep gathering. Their job was to cultivate the kingdom wherever they went. And so Jesus' commission to them is go out to the streets and pronounce that the kingdom of God is here, that the kingdom of God is now at hand. And this is why, in my personal opinion, take as as you will, that no one will be able to see the revival or reformation that is to come. 
because it won't be built on, on, on make sure I say this right, because it won't build numbers and it won't build mass fame for certain churches or leaders or worship movements. Rather, the revival that is to come is truly a reformation of the church where pockets of kingdom families begin to change regions, not because of how powerful their services they are, but because of how much people begin to look like Jesus. And the focus won't become this. We've discussed this multiple times. B-Love's focus is not our Sunday gathering. It's actually our communities and what is cultivated there. This is where we come together to pour ourselves out together. That is our place of fellowship, right? And what's coming in this reformation is this concept of, of not let's get to this place. It's I need to get around that person. I need to get around those people. I need to understand how they live, why they're doing what they're doing. Godly men and women will begin to change environments, businesses, cities, homes, marriages, finances, name it, it will happen. This happens when a people group begin to share in Koinonia Fellowship so much that they strengthen themselves to a place that they actually believe they are who Scripture says they are. What a crazy concept to get to a place where we believe that we are who Jesus and Paul says we are. The heartbreaking thing that will come out of this predominantly is that for a lot of kingdom families like ours, at first, most people won't want it. Because predominantly what is coming won't build notoriety or fame for people when they become a part of it. And people won't want to start kingdom families or have leadership in them because predominantly it won't build the financial success they've seen from other leaders off of former moves of God. That's why it will, for a while, look like there's a lot of people disdaining it. Rather, when you look inside these places, kingdom men and women and families will find fulfillment not in notoriety or fame, but actually kingdom men and women will find notoriety in being good husbands and good wives and good fathers and good mothers and good sons and good daughters and good leaders and right where they are. Rather than, than fame being, or rather than financial success being built to a leader leading a massive move of God, what you'll see in kingdom families is men and women inside the family, they find fulfillment within themselves. And because of that, what it does is it produces and breeds a new level of creativity and entrepreneurship entire, inside the entire family. And what happens is wealth is not divvied to the head. Wealth is divvied amongst the family because everyone is playing a participation and everyone has a role. Because you can't live into the kingdom realm and not access creativity and entrepreneurship because you were called to leadership, every one of you. It's the nature of who you were designed to be. Unfortunately, most people have been filled with so much shame and fear they don't believe they can be like Jesus and have become so comfortable in the church model that they're currently in they don't even see a need for power or breakthrough. They don't see it as necessary. It's the nature of it. What we're doing is working, so why change it, right? 
It's like a. It's like when you go over to someone's house and they're married and their marriage is working, but they're also kind of awkward because they feel like they kind of have an undertone of hating each other. You're like, they're probably not going to get divorced, but it doesn't make them any less awkward to be around. It's working. But it isn't what we've been called to. It isn't what's been promised to us. This is why kingdom family is so important. Because what's happening now is you're seeing families all across the nation, all across the world. You're seeing it in 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 wild countries in the Middle East, you're seeing people being called out of church norms, right? And 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 the, the, the beauty and the grace is that Yahweh is giving us this massive white flag to prepare for it so it doesn't crush us. So we're not crushed by what happens because if we don't watch ourselves, we are so romanticized at what has been, we will miss what is coming, right? The entire nation of Israel missed Jesus because of their nostalgia with the shadow that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. I'm going to say that again because it was really good. I don't want you to hear it twice. The entire nation of Israel missed Jesus because they were obsessed with the nostalgia of the shadow that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. Every time Jesus came on the scene, Pharisees began to say, but Moses said, but Moses said, but Moses said, but Moses said. And they were so happy and fulfilled in the nostalgia of the shadows and types that Moses saw that they actually missed the face of God. Imagine being so in love with a shadow that you choose not to actually see his face. Imagine being so obsessed with what Moses could interpret from seeing the shadow of him that you miss the person that says, if you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. And unfortunately, we can get caught in the same that we become so nostalgic for what the church has been that there begins to build in us this fear and trepidation of what might could come, right? It has to look this way. It has to be done this way has to move this way. There has to be three songs. There has to be a service on Sunday. There needs to be a youth group. There needs to be small groups. There needs to be an MC that welcomes the whole service. The preaching has to come after the worship. The giving has to come between the worship and the preaching. Right? And we're all okay with, with something else changing until it's the thing that we love. Right? A lot of people in here love worship. If we said for the next six weeks, we're going to do no worship, just teaching, we'd see half of you in six weeks. That's because Kaylee and Katie and Bailey are such good singers. I said, Kaylee, I connected your names. Yeah, of course. I get some brownie points. But we're okay with the church changing as long as it doesn't affect what we're nostalgic about in the room. Right? I'm that way. I grew up in one of the most, in my opinion, incredible youth groups in the world. We had 128 kids in my youth group, and I had the same youth pastor my entire life from 13 to 18. It was an awesome time. We went to places all the time. We did awesome things. Out of 128 kids, I know five that are currently in the church. Five. But we went to all the events. We went to Passion Conference. We did all the journals out in a cabin in Gatlinburg. How did what happened? Right? And, and I love that model. I have nostalgia for what was. But what I am wildly aware of is what it didn't do. 
And so what I have to become extremely comfortable with is tuning into the voice of Yahweh to the place and saying, what, you, what are you doing now? And what does the blueprint need to look like for this moment? We talked about this some on the podcast. The most shocking thing I find about the church now is that we do things just to do it and we don't actually ask. When we start a church, we build the 10-step process of what needs to be added into it. When we started Beloved, we had a youth group and some things happened and we had to change it. So we were trying to figure out what that looks like. And Yahweh said, I don't want you to have a youth group. I want you to build community out of your young ones, just like you do your adults. I was like, it's not how it's been done. People are going to pitch a fit. And they did. I heard a lot of fits pitched. A ton. Got some angry text messages. But there's this place where you have to be comfortable in saying, okay, what do you want to do? And not what does the model say it has to look like because it's looked this way. And the reason I think we are, I've talked about we're returning to this, this almost blueprint nature of the Acts church, but there's a reality of it, and I've said this tonight before, but there's this reality of it is actually a new pilgrimage because these things have been never tasted on this side of the planet. We've not really seen Koinonia Fellowship to the level that we saw in the Acts Church on, on, on the western side of the hemisphere. And so although we have a, 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 almost a blueprint, there is this leaning into mystery and understanding, understanding that there's an invitation into mystery to discover what it actually looks like in the here and in the now. It's a new wineskin. And as we've talked about before, we, we have to understand that we're moving into this new wineskin because he desires to pour something out that if it was poured into what was old, it would burst. And if the move of presence and understanding of who you are was poured into the old wineskin of what you thought the church had to look like, it wouldn't work. Jesus says it like this in Luke 5. And he gave them this illustration. No one rips up a new garment to make patches for an old worn out one. If you tear up the new to make a patch for the old, it would not match the old garment. And who pours new wine into old wineskins? If someone did, the old wineskin would burst and the new one would be lost. New wine must always be poured into new wineskins. Yet you say the old ways are better and refuse to even taste the new wine that I bring. There's been a lot of things that we've changed and I've heard statements like, well, it wasn't broke. Why'd you change it? Right? The old wine tasted just fine. Everyone liked it. And the sad part is, is that most people are unwilling to accept the invitation of mystery into something new, not because they've tasted it and don't like it, because, but because they don't even want to taste what it could possibly be. Jesus is saying in this portion of Scripture, you haven't even tasted what I'm offering to see if you like the old or the new. You're so obsessed with what was, you won't even taste what possibly I could bring to you or give to you. And Jesus brings these 12 hungry young men along that are willing to taste what's new and they bring an entire new blueprint to what this looks like. And they create such a tight-knit family of fellowship founded, built upon koinonia, built upon the identity of who they are, that they literally begin to change entire nations. That they begin to 
change entire continents out of their fellowship and out of who they are. No Sunday experiences, just intimacy. Right? No planned gatherings, just family. No schedule, just show up and see where the presence takes you. This is all attached. If This is all based upon, as I've said, this will all happen when we can become radicalized with the understanding how loved you are and who you've been designed to always be. Always, from the beginning. Jesus didn't knit you together in your mother's womb and not make plans for you. Don't believe that lie. It is this baptism of love. It is this baptism of your own understanding of your imputed righteousness and your imputed holiness and who you've been designed to be. This ability that you now carry as an image bearer everywhere you go to cultivate around you the kingdom, to cultivate around you the ability to have access to him everywhere that you are. This is what Koinonia Fellowship looks like. This is what we're moving into, is a strengthening of ourselves internally by connecting ourselves even greater as family based on the foundations of the, of the teachings of the apostles, which is the same love that God had for the Christ he actually has for you. <laughs> that the same passion and authority that God has given the Christ, he's given to you. Scripture says that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you not only share in all that he has, but you actually share in all that he is. You not only share in what has been given to Jesus, you actually share in the nature of who Jesus is. You are seen exclusively through the lens of Christ. Perfect, holy, righteousness, righteous, in, in perfect relationship with him. Let's stand. This concept, this idea, this ability to understand your righteousness, your holiness. As we continue on this idea of even Koinonia Fellowship, it all stems from the reality that you have been chosen to be loved. 1 John 4, 10 through 12 says that this is love, that he loved us long before we loved him. It was his love, not ours. He proved it by sending his son to be the pleasing sacrificial offering to take away our sins. Delightfully loved ones, if he loved us with such tremendous love, then loving one another should be our way of life. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor. But if we love one another, God makes his permanent home in us and we make our permanent home in him. And his love is brought to its fullness, to its full expression in us. Let me break this down for you again because this is wild. 
John the Beloved says, delightfully, lo delightfully loved ones. If he loved us with such tremendous love, then loving one another should be our way of life. He makes a bold statement that no one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor. If we were writing this in English, right here, they would actually put, but. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor, but if we love one another, God makes his permanent home in us and makes our permanent home in him. And his love is brought to its full expression in us. The amazing thing John points out here is that the full expression of mutual indwelling, the full expression of you living in Christ and Christ living in you is actually found in your ability to fully love the people in your Koinonia Fellowship. The reality of the fullness of living or the fullness of your awareness of living in him and him living in you comes in your ability to gather with kingdom family and find your unity with them. What an odd statement. My thought process has always been that it's exclusively between me and the Lord. My ability to understand and understand our relationship and me and Jesus and how this works is exclusively between us. But first John actually says, that the fullness of that, the fullness of expressing and understanding and looking at the splendor of God is found in the ability to love one another in the same way that Christ loved us. And that foundation is built upon the beginning of the scripture that this is love. He actually loved you before you loved him. It goes as far to say he actually loved you before you even chose to love him. I'm gonna call our, our, our team up tonight, um, our ministry team. And I, I just wanna end with this thought. We're going to continue the next couple weeks on this idea of Koinonia Fellowship and what it means. And I know tonight was a lot of review, but there is a place inside of you, I believe, that is struggling and doubting your seated place in the Christ. And good theology is not going to cut it. It's actually going to require invitation into mystery and intimacy with him. And so if you need prayer tonight, if you need a time with someone else helping, maybe open that invitation for you, we have people up here. But I just wanna pray and then you guys are, are, are free to go. Father, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you for what you're building in our house. We thank you for the people that you are making us. Ah, but we are not a congregation, but we are a family. We are a family of sons and daughters, of husbands and fathers, of wives and mothers. We are ecclesia built upon koinonia fellowship, the intimacy shared amongst those who find themselves mutually connected through and in Christ. Abba, continue to teach us and guide us into the full revelation of our own co-seatedness that we may begin our pilgrimage into cultivating the kingdom realm in every area that we have access to. Let us understand our position. Let us understand our place of influence. Let us see ourselves as the Father sees you.
We worship you in Jesus' name. We pray.